0: From the New York City area, welcome to the Badass Counseling Show, where the master badass himself, Sven Erlinson, takes you deep and gives balm for the soul, baby.
1: Oh, hell yes. Hell yes. Another lightning round episode of the Badass Counseling Show. And I am jacked. I'm fucking lit. I always love working on the show, being in studio with KC over in the booth. And Rob, Rob, how are you today? Talk to me. Hey, Sven, I'm great, thanks. And I'm ready for you to get going at your usual lightning
0: round speed with helping people to change. You know, it was Winston Churchill who said, to improve is to change, but to be perfect is to change often. Well, I don't know about you, but I must need to change a heck of a lot more because I am a long way from perfect. (laughs) You take it from there, dude.
1: Well, uh, speaking of changing, I, I'm reminded of that episode. What did the ship captain during the, you know, say to his on the aircraft carrier to all of his crew? You know, he pulled everybody up on deck and he said, "Today, I've got great news for you," and they're all excited. Yeah, yeah. And he says, "Today, you're all gonna get a change of underwear," and they're all like, "Ah, yeah, woohoo!" And then he says, "Anderson, I want you to change with Jones." c I want you to change with Larson. Okay, yeah. Okay. change. We're, we're there. <laughs> okay. No, so we're ready to go here with the lightning round episode. Uh, if everyone's ready, I say rock and roll hoochie coup. Let's go with a lightning round episode. First question that we have is, all right. Talking with your spouse about what you talked about in your counseling session, I'm taking that to mean, should I uh, talk with my spouse about what I talk about in my counseling session? So I'm going to assume it's not a uh, marital counseling session because you would have both been there, right? You're talking about an individual session. And I basically hear you saying, should I talk about it with my spouse when I talk about my session? And my question to you would be, if you and I were having a beer right now, it would be, well, do you want to? Um, and I'm betting the mere fact that you're asking that question says, obviously, you're conflicted. You don't know if you should or you shouldn't. And my simple response is, if you want to, fact, do it. If you don't want to, by all means, do not do it. Don't. And don't let anybody pressure you. Don't let a spouse pressure you into sharing what you're talking about in session. We've taped episodes before of, uh, of our show where someone will say, yeah, when I was a kid, I was seeing a therapist and I I grew to realize very, very quickly that I couldn't share with the therapist what was really going on inside of me because it wasn't safe because the therapist would report it to my parents. And then I'd eat it on the back end, or my father or my mother would tell the therapist a certain story that wasn't true. And then that skewed how the therapist saw me. In other words, what I'm getting at is anything that will undermine your relationship or your work, not even your relationship with your therapist but any anything that'll undermine that or potentially undermine that don't do it you're not obligated to share anything that happens in session however if you wanted to discuss something that's happening in session and you feel it will be good for you and or for the relationship if you need to do that feel free go for it all right next question i love someone who survived a narcissist he shuts down constantly with emotion any thoughts you say he shuts down with emotion, so I'm assuming you mean anytime he feels an emotion, he shuts down. And clearly, you don't like that. Obviously, um, you're wanting him to open up. And if this person survived a narcissist, my first question would be how far out of the relate, uh, how far out of his relationship with that person, um, with the narcissist, is your spouse? Or is this uh, person you're in a relationship with? Is it six months? Is it 16 years? What are we talking about? Because if it's a long, long period of time, uh, then this is for someone who hasn't done the work and they may not even be open if you were to be there and to love on them and create safe space for them. However, if it is somewhat new, your job is to love on them while simultaneously maintaining your own boundaries and and going after what you want in a fucking relationship. So you've got someone who's shutting down. So clearly they're triggered by their own emotion and they need to go into their own shell and deal with their own emotion. And what you can do is continue to love them and convey to them that it's safe. Because part of what's happening inside of them, whether they're aware of it or not, is they're testing you to see if they can trust you, to see if you are safe because what they learned with the narcissist is that their feelings weren't safe. It was all about the narcissist and very often their own feelings would get put down or taken advantage of or what have you. So you can convey the love and convey the love, but if it reaches uh, a point where you feel like you're giving way, way, way more than you're getting, or this person just isn't opening up, or you're finding I really am not enjoying this relationship, that and you're and you you have to be expressing your needs as well. It's not just this person because otherwise, then they become the narcissist in your relationship because it becomes all about them. All right, so it has to be this free exchange of people sharing their needs and attempting to meet their uh, partner's needs. Um, But what are my thoughts? Love on the person and also make sure your love needs are being met as well. And see if they at some point start to open up. And if they don't, then you're going to have to have the come to Jesus moment with yourself is do I want to continue in a relationship with someone who doesn't open up with me? All right, next question How do you move on after being married to a narcissist? I've been separated for five months. Uh, five months of separation and you did not say divorced. So that says you, the divorce is probably still going through or is it on hold? Um, but how do you move on after being married to a narcissist? You go inside and you start looking at all the feelings, all the things that you were told by the narcissist, all the things they made you feel, all the things that you thought about yourself and maybe even still think about yourself. You have to go inside and you have to start pulling those out and it's going to be painful. You have to start looking at them and if you're not in counseling, I recommend it. But I also say that if you uh, aren't in counseling and you want to do it on your own, you can do this on your own. But you have to start journaling. You have to write, start writing letters. And I strongly recommend that you write a letter. Start with one that you write to your narcissist ex that you do not give to the person. You do not send it. They will never see it. The purpose of this is for you to flush out all of your feelings And to purge the hate, the anger, the love, the lust, the longing, the missing them, the loneliness, the everything, everything you feel, flush it all out. And then write that same letter or a new letter, excuse me, a new letter in a month, in two months, in six months. You have to be flushing out all those feelings while you're simultaneously journaling on your own stuff and I've created tools to help you do this my free podcast, all the free videos I do as well as you know the book uh, there's a whole in my love cup and so forth but you have to be flushing out all your feelings furthermore where you really need to go with all of your inner work is you need to go back to all the stuff that preceded you walking into and staying in a relationship with a narcissist how were you set up by your previous relationships how were you set up by your own childhood? to walk into a relationship with a narcissist. What were the messages that you were getting walking in from your childhood that impacted how you addressed things happening in this new relationship as you were walking into it? What red flags were present in this relationship that you maybe didn't see or didn't want to see and getting into what the reasons were that you didn't see them. On my TikTok page and on my Instagram page and so forth, uh, just in the last two weeks, I've done a couple of videos on red flags and why we miss red flags in the beginning of a relationship. Well, if you want to heal from ending a relationship with a narcissist, part of the healing and part of what's going to empower you moving forward is to find out how the hell I got here in the first place. What was going on at the beginning of the relationship or predating the relationship? What was going on inside of me? Because that is the stuff that causes me to not see red flags, to not want to see red flags, to ignore red flags. Because every relationship that goes bad at one point, long before that, it started going bad. So at the point that it started, I don't care if there's love bombing in a relationship. People say, well, if you're being love bombed, blah, blah, blah. At some point, the the mere fact that you're saying love bombing implies that it had ended at some point. Okay, there we go. There it started. Or it might have been going on even inside of the love bombing. There might have been red flags there. So then you got to ask yourself the question, if I want to empower myself moving forward so that I'm not susceptible and so that I'm healed and so that I'm seeing red flags, then I've got to look at what was going on inside of me when the love bombing was happening. And just so you're aware, very often, as I explained in one of the videos that I did on red flags and so forth, is that very often love bombing isn't love bombing at all. It's just that I got no fucking love in the home that I grew up in or very, very little love. So I walk into a relationship where I'm no longer, you know, if in my home growing up, I got a smidgen of love and now I'm in a relationship where I'm getting a triple smidgen. Holy shit, I just hit the fucking love smidgen jackpot. I'm getting triple love from what I've ever gotten. Yeah, but you're still only getting three smidgens. That's not love bombing. It's just more of very little and because you got that, you didn't see the red flags. Think about it. So you, we have to assess ourselves. We have to go inside of ourselves. There's uh, that old quote, and it's sort of a derivative of the Heisenberg uncertainty principle. It's very derivative, but I must constantly remind myself I'm part of the problem I'm trying to solve. And that includes, if I'm trying to solve my relationships moving forward, then I got to look at what was going on inside of me back there. And that's the really beautiful work because that cracks open some major shit. And that's where we begin to heal and grow and change. It's not saying, oh, it's my fault. Fault, fuck fault. Put fault aside. It's how, what was going on inside of me and how do I keep this from happening again? That's called empowering myself. All right, next question. Need help with crippling anxiety, with setting boundaries All right, Darcy, I'm just going to put a few things out there right away. Uh, Crippling anxiety. Anxiety is what? Fear, right? If I'm anxious over something, I'm anxious over giving a speech to people, I'm fearful of it. Fearful that they might laugh at me, that I might be stupid, that I might fail, blah, 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 all those things. Okay, so anxiety is fear. And you have trouble with, you have crippling anxiety when it comes to setting boundaries. Okay, and the fear in setting boundaries, more often than not, is that if I... If I tell you what I don't want, what I won't allow, what I'm not going to go, if I set up a boundary, a fence, I'm fundamentally saying, no, certain things are not allowed inside that fence on my property, and no, I'm not going to go outside of my fence for certain things. No, I don't want to go to that movie on Thursday. No, you can't say those things to me. And here's the thing about putting up boundaries. A, A boundary is a no. So I have fences around my property, right? Keep the dogs in, keep the deer out, keep the coyotes out from eating, gobbling my dogs. Okay, things like that. If somebody trespasses, transgresses that boundary, that's not okay. My, that's a no. It's a no, you can't come over here. Now, some of my close neighbors, they, they're welcome on my property, in my garage, you borrow my ladder because I'm very, very close and they're fine people, all right? But anybody I don't know transgressing my boundaries is transgressing a no- and what we do when we put a no out there, when we put a fence out there, when we put a boundary out there, what we're we're revealing part of ourselves. We reveal ourselves in our no's just as much as we reveal ourselves in our yeses. And it's scary to say no and to put our, our self out there. Why? Because we'll be criticized. Well, why can't I come onto your property? You know, why can't I, Sven? I'm your neighbor too. I'm Marcy. I get to come onto your property whenever I want. And I say, no, Marcy, I have a fence, and you're not allowed. Everyone else is. You're bad. They're good. No, I'm teasing. Marcy's lovely. Uh, the point is this. We're revealing ourselves when we put a no, when we put a boundary out there. And so you by you having crippling anxiety with setting boundaries, you're fearful of putting yourself out there. You're fearful of being criticized, fearful of what people will think, fearful of the pushback, fearful of the backlash if you reveal who you really are. And what you've been taught likely your entire life is that you're not allowed to have boundaries, that it's about everybody else's fucking feelings and they get to do what they want and they can come in and do a home makeover inside of you, in your life and in you, in your soul, who you are, if they want to and you don't get to say no. You've been conditioned to believe that everybody else's feelings, needs, wants matter and yours don't. And it's scary to start doing that. But ultimately, until you do Do that and do it more and do it more. And when you do, you'll get more confidence. But until you do that, you are in fact, you are confirming the message, I don't matter. My feelings don't matter. Every time you don't put up a boundary when you know you want to, you are sending the message to the heavens, I don't matter. You are sending the message to humanity. You are confirming into yourself. You are saying, I don't matter. My boundaries don't matter. What I feel, what I want doesn't matter. You okay with that? See, now it's not someone else. Now it's you saying it. And you can't be okay with that because you do matter and you have to matter in the boundaries you put up. But so ultimately, how do you deal with crippling anxiety over setting boundaries? You go inside and you ask yourself, you start digging deep in your journaling and in your counseling. What is it I'm afraid of? I'm a, and so I would simply ask you, what is the one sentence you most fear people thinking of you or saying to you when you set up boundaries? What is the one sentence above all else? Is it, oh, I don't like you anymore? Is it you're you're a bad person? Some derivative of that, there you go. And who's the person you most fear thinking that about you? Who is it? Who would it hurt the very most if they thought that about you? Or who's most likely to say that? And it would really sting. All right, so what you're fundamentally saying is that sentence of, let's say it's you're a bad person or... Um, I don't like you anymore, and then you name who that person is that it would most hurt to hear that from, then you are fundamentally conveying that this person basically fucking owns you. This person has so much power over you that you are not putting up boundaries because you so fear their criticism. You're giving this person, that person, whoever it is, so much fucking power over you. Are you okay with that? Are you okay with being miserable so that they won't hurt you? At what point in your life do you get sick of being hurt? At what point in your life do you get sick of giving your life over to someone else, giving them that much power at the expense of your own joy, at the expense of your own sense of peace? You see where I'm going with all that? All right, well, you gotta do that work. You gotta get out all those fears and all that pain until you're no longer afraid and you just start doing it a little bit, a little bit, and here's the thing, the more we do something a little bit and a little bit, the more we get our sort of at-bats, the better we get at it and it becomes less scary. It's a little better, a little better, and then you'll be doing it and it'll be old hat and you'll be like, fuck, I wish I would have done this sooner. But it'll be like, I'm glad I'm doing it now. Next question. How do you deal with a partner that has ADHD and has anger that can go from zero to 10 in seconds? I'm going to assume in this case that the real issue that probably you're struggling with most is that anger going from totally calm to white hot in seconds. Um, That's called volatile. If a chemical in chemistry class in at a chemical plant if a chemical can go from uh dormant to explosive in seconds we call that volatile that is a, a volatile uh inflammable that is you know um non predictable uh, and that's Highly uncomfortable to be in the company of someone, let alone to be in a love relationship with the person. You say it's your partner and they can go their anger from zero to 10 in seconds. Okay. So you're wondering, how do you deal with that? First of all, above all else, you have to protect yourself. And if someone's going white hot on you in seconds and it doesn't feel good, get the fuck out. And I'm not necessarily saying permanently out of the relationship. You may choose that. I'm just saying get out. You are not obligated to eat someone's shit. Someone who can go from zero to white hot in seconds is not someone who has control of their emotions. And you are not required to eat that, okay? That being said, you say, how do you deal with it? Um, I have to believe that to some degree you're asking, well, how do I interact with the person to help calm them down? Okay, that's part of the question, not necessarily the good question because that's basically you placating them, you kowtowing to their needs when in fact they're the ones who can't fucking control themselves. The way you deal with it it ultimately is so, can you love on them? Can you be patient? All those things. Yeah, sure you can. But in the end, the way you deal with it is by standing up. Don't start backing down because what people who use anger or can't control their emotions is they become inflated, they become swollen, pregnant and and purging all of their strong emotions. And the effect very often is that the other person will back down, will back down, will back down. And before you know it, you're in a relationship where you're constantly eating shit and all they have to do is express a bit of anger and they get what they want. And the relationship becomes centered around them. And I'm guessing to some degree, lioness, it might already be there, right? So how do you deal with that? In all honesty, you stand up for yourself. You don't back down, you can't back down. Because once you start, that's a slippery motherfucking slope. And you're going to find yourself sliding, rocket sliding down a slope of pain and sadness and misery because it's just too much of a hassle to give in. And if you find yourself sliding down that slope, you need to get the fuck out of that relationship because that doesn't get better magically. And if someone doesn't want to listen, if someone is already not in control of their emotion, I'm just going to be straight up with you. Someone who isn't, in, you can recommend counseling. And if they're not doing it, you can tell them that they're hurting you with their anger and that this volatility, this roller coaster that you're on, is not fun and it sucks. And I want it to stop, and they don't, and they're not doing anything to get help. I'm going to be straight up honest with you. You need to get the fuck out. That shit doesn't magically heal itself. And if this person isn't willing to get help, sure, you can go get counseling for yourself. That's great. But that the, the, your problems, the counseling for yourself, that's a symptom of the virus. The virus, the problem, the real issue, the sickness, is that this person has these fucking issues that they're going white hot in seconds. Un, and unpredictably, that's the problem that you're trying to respond to. And you can't control that. And you don't stay in a relationship with somebody like that. That doesn't just... That's not going to go away, so you're stuck with this and that. No, who who the hell would want that sort of uncertainty and pain and misery and in their life? Um, I had a, I was in a relationship uh, many many years ago, and I recall, um, and I was young, I was in my twenties, and I recall my partner saying to me, Sven, being on a roller coaster in life is bad enough, but being on someone else's roller coaster is worse because you have no control over the circumstances. All you can decide is whether to get in, get on, or get off. And in this case, Lioness, you say, how to deal with a partner that has ADHD and has anger that can go from zero to 10 in seconds. You're on somebody's roller coaster and you have no control. Basically, you can try to love them and and make your needs known, but if they aren't changing, you only have one decision. That's whether to stay on this madness and let it continue to destroy you or you can get off the ride. All right. After this short break, I'll continue to take you deep right here on the Badass Counseling Show. My wife pushed me to watch this guy's TikTok videos, so I finally caved in, and holy crap, blew me away. I started watching more, and every tam- time he opens his mouth, I get blown away in a whole new way. So I finally bought his book, There's a Hole in My Love Cup. To say I got an ass-kicking is an understatement. Much needed. It was like having my own personal tough therapist who just gets it. So go do yourself a favor. Get There's a Hole in My Love Cup. It's powerful stuff.
0: This show provides soul counseling intended to entertain and inform and is not medical advice. Now, back to the badass.
1: Yes, we are back. And in the middle of a lightning round and we're kicking some ass, having some really great questions here, going right back into it. All right. She was in the mood, but I was too tired after a long day. Now she wants space. Help. Okay. We're obviously talking about sex, right? Um, She wanted to have sex and I was just fucking tired. And the truth is that happens. That happens. We are too tired for sex. Have you ever been in a situation where you've been having sex and you fell asleep? I have. I, I swear to God I and we may end up editing this out of the show but I was I I was so tired I was working three jobs I was uh, living in California and I fell asleep. Um, and she was not happy about that. So, yes, tired is a human emotion. It's a human thing. We get tired. And unfortunately, sometimes when I'm tired, you're not. Sometimes when you're tired, I'm not. And sometimes I'm in the mood for sex and you're not and vice versa. This, isn't, this shit isn't easy to navigate, people. Part of being two people being in a relationship is that different things are firing inside of each person at different times. I want to go for a workout. I don't. I want to stay home and watch cartoons, okay? Ah, Let's go for a walk. Ah, I'm not feeling like a walk. I'm feeling like let's play Monopoly. I mean, it's just, this is any relationship. It could be your best friend since childhood and you're still going to have differences, all right? If there's no room for differences, fuck, what kind of relationship do we have? Then it either has to be about one person or the other. And now we don't have a relationship anymore, do we? We just have sort of an ownership. You own me to meet your needs. All right, so she was in the mood. She opened up and she was feeling amorous and she came on to you or she, you know, dressed sexy or she just said, hey, sweetheart, do you want to go to bed? But I was too tired after a long day. So you said something along the lines of a sweetheart. I would love to, you're gorgeous, um, I'm just so beat after a long day. Now she wants space. In all likelihood, she, obviously she wouldn't want space unless she was hurt. She was wounded. She likely felt that I opened up, I expressed my sexual longing for um, for the man I love, Derek, and, uh, and I was rejected. And so she's retreating. And if I'm really honest, I've been there where I uh, wanted sex and I opened up and I said so and the other person said no or I'm tired or this or that. And then I withdrew because it's really an intimate thing. Sex is an intimate thing. A very dear friend of mine is a psychologist and he says, you know, Sven, anytime I have clients talking about sex, I know we're at the most intimate stuff. I personally disagree with him. I think there's other stuff that's even more intimate, but the point is well taken. It's about almost or is as intimate as it gets. It's our most intimate stuff. It's our most inner stuff when we're talking about sex. So to reveal someone, I would like to have sex with you, my partner, And then to be rejected, it hurts. She was hurt. But the truth is, I I, I mean, assuming you conveyed your message in a kind way, so there was no problem with the tone, you had every right to convey how you felt. I'm just tired, sweetheart. Could we do it in the morning or whatever? Whatever. And so in a way, two people were being authentic. Two people were revealing themselves. It would be very easy for her now to not reveal when she wants sex and to begin to shut down. And that's the beginning of an end of a relationship. It would be very easy for you to shut down and not share your feelings when you're feeling tired or when you're feeling sad or when you're feeling mad. And guess what? It's very easy for guys to shut down sharing how they feel. You want to kill a relationship Do what a lot of guys have been conditioned to do, and that is their feelings don't matter. And so they begin to shut down in the relationship because, once again, they don't matter. and What they feel doesn't matter. Or if you're a woman or with a guy, shut down sexually. See what that does for a relationship, right? So what has to happen here, Derek, is you guys have to talk this out. You have to go to her and or she has to come to you and you guys have to say, uh, let's talk this out. And you have to understand that this is not... You're not discussing work. You're not discussing, hey, where do you wanna go you know, for dinner this weekend? You are now, you're gonna be talking about sex, you're gonna be talking about feelings of feeling tired, you're gonna be talking about hurts. So you both have to take off your shoes, metaphorically speaking, because Moses, you are on sacred ground. Take off your shoes. This is sacred ground. You have to tread gently. Anytime you are in conversation with someone where it's your most intimate stuff, you have to tell them that and ask them to tread gently. Anytime you're on someone else's intimate stuff, you have to understand this is sacred ground. And so often, so many of the wounds we cause in relationships is because we fail to understand the holiness of the ground that we're walking on and, and talking about when someone reveals their intimate things self and that's what happened here that this was not revered as sacred ground for both of you because whether or not uh either of you admits it what she revealed was intimate stuff what you revealed was your real feelings and it's easy to say ah it's no big deal i'll do it i'll tough it out even though i'm really feeling tired it's easy to neglect our own feelings and so you both need to have the real come to jesus conversation with each other and by the way i would recommend in your own personal journaling be journaling out your feelings and your fears in in going and talking to her and so forth. Flush out all of your emotions so that when you go and talk, you're able to be calm and present to her and hopefully she is doing the same for you. All right, next question. Journaling, therapy, meds and books, nothing is working. Self-love and life's purpose after divorce. Okay, you've done everything and it's not working. And uh, I'm assuming that means, I'm assuming that means you are struggling with self-love and a sense of life purpose, what all of this means, if all of those aren't working, that means there is pain and fear and there are messages you've been taught about yourself that are inside that are not you have not dislodged. It's in there. I guarantee it. If you don't have self-love and if you don't have a sense of purpose, your self-love and your own purpose, your own calling in life, it's in you. It's not out there to be found. It's inside of you. And what keeps us from tapping that and from it rising up everlessly is the crud inside. And that means inside of you, there is some crap, messages you were taught about yourself and pain that if I'm being really honest, you're terrified to touch. You're terrified to touch. You're terrified to open up. And I'm willing to bet More often than not, it's something regarding mom and or something regarding dad. This is childhood fucking shit that is down there. The most powerful messages we receive come from childhood and more often than not, they come from the people we love the very most, which is more often than not, mom and dad. And I'm willing to bet there is extreme pain, potentially extreme anger, potentially hatred, and there's stuff, this is the stuff you've been running from your entire life. It's down there and it has to come out. And so uh, what the question I would ask you is, what is the single biggest life pain that you don't want to touch? And or what is the single biggest memory from your life that you don't want to touch, that you've been running from your entire life, that you avoid, that you don't want to talk about? What is it? What's the biggest? There may be more than one, but what's the biggest? I guarantee there's something there. And I wish we were having a a conversation over beers or something like that, because I would love to ask you these questions because there's something in there. I would love to dig down deep. There is something that is blocking up all of this. All right, next question. How do I forgive people for hurting me? How do I let grudges go? Very often, if we can't let a grudge go or if someone's hurting me and I can't forgive, it's because we're still holding on. And so even though I have the grudge, I've never really gone fully into it. In other words, it's sort of biting at my heels, but I'm not actually addressing it. But I want to address something first before I finish on this. Cinderella says, how do I forgive people for hurting me? The goal is not forgiveness. When someone's hurt you or you've hurt someone, it can create a breach in the relationship, a separation, an impasse between two people. And very often, we have it pushed on us, the idea that we need to repair the breach, that reconciliation is the goal. Reconciliation is not the goal. If you choose to forgive at some point, hey, God bless you, go for it. But that's not the goal. Reconciling the relationship is not the goal. The goal is the healing of the self. If you choose to uh, to forgive and reconcile the relationship after you heal yourself, God bless you, go for it. But if you're racing towards reconciliation before the healing of yourself, then you're short-circuiting that healing process cart before the horse sort of thing. And what the effect is of forgiving before um, healing of self is that your authentic feelings just get stuffed down, they get bottled up, they get neglected, in all likelihood, just as they always have. So here's the thing, Uh, don't rush to forgiveness. Forgiveness isn't the point, healing is. And so you're saying though, well, okay, so how do I heal from someone hurting me? How do I let the grudges go? You let grudges go and you heal by not trying to let the grudges go by not trying to force the letting go process. It's the same in a divorce when you you can't let go of the person you are in love with. Stop trying to let go. Keep holding on and go into it and feel everything and flush all of the feelings and let yourself feel them. Write the love letter, or in this case, write the hate letter. How do I let the grudges go? You need to write a letter that you do not send. Start with just one letter, flushing out everything. You motherfucker, you did this, and I hope you rot in hell and everything you're feeling and do it in the most... Extreme language, really f- get it out there and keep flushing because the truth is you have anger inside of you. The reason it's not naturally letting go is because you still have anger. So it means letting that anger out. It's the feelings that we resist that persist, all right? It's the feelings that we, we've stuffed down that stay down. The goal is to welcome those feelings, to allow them to come up and allow them to go out because feelings Are in their natural course, in the natural course or life of a feeling, it comes, it stays, and it goes if we let it. But if we deny that feeling, it just gets stuffed down. So we're pocketing it. So when people say, Oh, I I don't wanna feel the hate, I'm not a hater. Technically, you actually are a hater. You're saying if you don't wanna feel it, you don't wanna express it, you're saying it's there. I just don't want to let it out because I don't want to be a hater. Well, technically you already are a hater because you're carrying all that hate around. What I'm saying is let it out so that you aren't a hater anymore. But you carry it around and then it just eats you up, right? Whereas if you let it out, and I don't mean you ever have to confront the person with your grudge, with your anger, with your uh, uh, pain over them hurting. You don't have to ever have, you don't need the other person. The person can die and you can still heal. But you have to get it all out. You have to welcome all of that and allow it to come up and out. All right, next question. How do I move on when he love-bombed, then disappeared? I feel abandoned and unlovable. your That's a great question. I, I'm glad you asked that. How do I move on when I've been love-bombed, and then he disappeared, and I feel abandoned and unlovable? Uh, right, that love-bombing felt good, didn't it? And just a minute ago, I was talking about smidgens and triple smidgens, that very often what feels like love-bombing actually really isn't, it feels like love bombing because very often it's more love than we've ever gotten before in our past. That we got so little love growing up that we're vulnerable to people showing that little amount plus a little bit more. So let's say I got a smidgen when I was a kid, you know, that love wasn't shown or it wasn't told when we were kids. And so what little times I got love, oh, it felt so good. So now I, whether it's when I'm a teenager, or I'm in my 20s or, or 30s when i get someone giving me even a triple smidgen it feels like oh my god i just fucking hit the powerball of love someone's he's love bombing me no they're just giving you a triple smidgen you're not, you're still not even getting a, a a teaspoon let alone a cup let alone a gallon you're not even getting a fucking teaspoon you're getting a triple smidgen that's it that's not love bombing but it feels like it, it feels like triple more than you've ever fucking gotten right so you were set up to believe that this is love bombing and so then when they disappear you feel abandoned understandable but isn't it interesting what you said I feel abandoned and unlovable now that's your natural state see that's what you felt prior to this quote unquote love bomber coming into your life your natural state that you were taught you're not not your original natural state like when you came out of the womb but what you were taught in your home growing up is that you're unlovable that's why a triple smidgen feels like love bombing to you because you got such tiny amounts of love you know what a child's brain does and it's actually kind of logical if a child isn't getting love isn't getting love poured into their love cup or is only getting tiny one medicine dropper droplet full of love but lots of crud put in the love cup do you know what that child's brain does? the child's brain says, in the back of the brain, not in the front. They're not even conscious that they're doing this. What happens is the child says, I'm not getting love. Clearly, they make the, and then they make this little leap. Clearly, I'm unlovable. And you can almost understand why someone would make that leap. Even as adults, if someone's not giving us love or isn't being kind, well, what's wrong with me? Ah, that's right. So there's, it's sort of a natural human reflex, and a child even more so because their little, pretty little brains aren't fully developed. So they think if I'm not getting love, I must be unlovable. So here you are, and you ask this question, Kayla. You say, "How do I move on when he love bombed then disappeared? I feel abandoned and unlovable." Exactly. You've been taught your whole life that you are unlovable. So when someone gives you a triple smidge and a love and then walks away. You're back to that state that you were taught as a child that you're unlovable. And the truth is you're not unlovable. The truth is that child that you were, Kayla, was never unlovable. You were taught a lie. And so what resounds in your head when the love bomber disappears, what resounds in your head is those messages you were taught as a child that you are unlovable, that you are unwantable. And that the real you doesn't matter. And that's why being alone is so horrific for so many people. It's not the fact that they're actually literally physically alone. It's the the messages that come roaring back up when they're alone. See, when someone is here saying, oh, I love you and you're great, it's a counter message to all the messages I've been getting as a child. So it's a buffer. It keeps me safe from all those messages that got pressed inside of me when I was a child. But you remove that buffer. When that person walks away from my life, now all those messages come (laughs) roaring back up in my head and tumbling and tumbling and tumbling. And that's why we feel alone and abandoned and unlovable. It's those fucking messages from the past. So obviously the goal then is to go inside of myself, find those messages, begin to identify them, and do the work of flushing them out in journaling, in counseling, and so forth. More to come in a minute. But first, the short break. Here's a conversation I recently had with my producer, KC. So, KC, you've been in this business a long time. Why do you work on my show?
0: It's because we're helping people change their lives. Listen to some of the feedback we get. Finding that podcast changed my life, my career, and the way I parent my son. This man basically broke my generational trauma. Or this one. I heard one of your podcasts last week, and it was talking about how a girl was always very reactive when she was talking to her mom. And then it was because she's constantly listening to all the negative things her mom said. And that became her own inner voice. I shared that with my therapist. And when I say I was in tears, I was bawling. I've only ever brought my mom up in therapy like two or three times. And today was a major breakthrough. So thank you so much, Sven. You're amazing.
1: Well, Casey, I love having you on the show. And you're amazing what you bring to the team. And it's cool to think that we're touching people's lives. And thanks for what you put into it.
0: I really believe in this show. People should definitely subscribe and download it. It'll change your life. Back with more to kick your ass. Here's Sven.
1: Fucking ain't right. I'm here to kick your ass. Let's go, guys. This is great. All right. All right. All right. All right. Is trauma withdrawal real? Yes. Yes. What are the symptoms? Depression, loneliness, screwed up relationships or relationships that fail or are unfulfilling? Is trauma withdrawal from trauma real? Oh, hell yes. I mean, that's a simple Google search right there. And any therapist worth their weight in salt will tell you that one. Uh, trauma has profound lifetime, long lasting effects. If it is not dealt with, it will suck the fucking life out of you. It'll destroy you from the inside out. And that's why so much of my work is helping people go into that trauma because they've had to, as a self-protection mechanism, they've had to run from it or self-medicate or do anything they could because it's so painful, but at some point you have to face it. You have to face that tidal wave of pain that you've been running from and hurting from and aching inside from, and you've been running from it as a self-protection mechanism. Don't get me wrong, I'm not dogging you for running from the trauma, but at some point to truly heal, you do have to finally allow that up and out, and it does flush out. It can be flushed out once and for all. Those memories can be discharged de- of their emotional charges. All right, next question this is good. Is jealousy a wrong thing to feel? No. No, of course not. There's no feeling that's wrong to feel. Isn't it interesting that we're conditioned to believe that certain feelings are wrong to feel, such as oh, anger, jealousy, envy? These are feelings. Are you aware of the fact that you literally, that a feeling is an involuntary response? You can respond to a feeling, but you can't, in fact, control or um, uh, stop a feeling. You feel what you feel. You can deny its existence. You can stuff it down, but it's still there. So to have a natural human response. So if somebody punches me in the face, I feel hurt. I feel rage. I feel disappointed. I feel embarrassed, okay? Okay. But all of those are real feelings. So for you to say, is jealousy a wrong thing to feel? No, you can feel it. You can feel anything you fucking want. It's your fucking life. Don't let anybody ever shame your feelings. Now, the question obviously becomes, what do you do with the jealousy? Are you acting on it? If so, how are you acting on it? And is it controlling your life? And so, um, or any of those things. But what I always recommend doing with uh, with jealousy, with any feeling, is journaling. Flushing out, going inside with a piece of paper and a pen. Or on, you know, typing it in your computer. I have plenty of people who journal in their computer. Or write a song, write a poem, write a letter. But you've got to begin flushing out all of these feelings and what you're feeling. Well, what, and then asking yourselves the question like, okay, what is it I'm really jealous about in this particular situation? Who is it I'm jealous of? What is it I'm jealous of? And what is that an indicator of? Well, it's an indicator that they have something that I don't have and I want it. Okay. And what is it about not having it? What am I feeling when I don't have that thing that I'm jealous of, whether it's a title or a, a possession or money or uh, a lover or whatever, or a particular health or their you know body or whatever? What is it about not having that? I mean, jealousy implies I don't have it and I want it, right? What is it about not having it that I feel? What's the feeling I'm feeling? Well, I'm feeling, um, besides jealous, when I don't have that, I'm feeling insecure. I'm feeling unlovable, or I'm feeling what? So name your feelings, and then go even deeper. Ask, well, why do I feel that? Where was I conditioned to believe that not having those things is unlovable? Who taught me to believe, or where did I get the message that having less money is bad? Where did I get the message that my body is uh, not attractive? I mean, this is a really interesting one. I'll just run with that one for a second. Do you know how many clients I get who, uh, in their 40s, I, I just had a client, oh, I don't know, last week, whatever, and the fellow's in his uh, mid-30s, and he says, you know, Sven, I've always had weight issues my whole life, and I remember, you know, I, I think back on when I was 15, and I was struggling with my weight back then, and I thought I was so fat. Sven, I look back on those pictures myself when I was 15. It's just like, fuck, I'd kill for that body now. That was a great body. What the hell was I thinking? I thought it was a fully normal, normal range body. There was no doctor telling me I was overweight, anything. Isn't that interesting? Isn't it interesting that later in life, we look back on things that we worried about then or beat up on ourselves about, and we look back on it now, it's like, God, that was nothing. In retrospect, I'd love to have that problem now or what have you, but we're so prone to beating up on ourselves. So you're asking the question, Well, where were you taught that you not having that is not okay or that you're less than a person? So this is what it means, you guys, to dig, to go deeper, asking the why questions. What am I feeling? Where did I get that message that I should feel this way or who taught me to feel this way? All of these, you're going deeper. You're unearthing the uncomfortable stuff, going into those profound messages that you were taught because that's where the fucking healing is. All right, next question. Kathy asks the question, how do you heal from a biological mom that rejected you and an adoptive mom that said she never wanted you? Oh, gosh. Kathy, I am so sorry. Truly. I think every single one of us listening feels so bad for you. To be told that by really the two most powerful women in your life. To be told that uh, you're not wanted. Your mom rejected you and your adoptive mom says she never wanted you. That's extraordinary pain. And I guess the question I would want to ask you if we were in person is I'd want to ask you the question, um, was the 7-year-old or the 9-year-old or the 12-year-old girl that you uh, were when these things happened, was she allowed to express her feelings? Did you have an avenue for flushing out the sadness, the extreme sorrow and grief you must have felt? Were you allowed? Did you have avenues? Did you have tools for getting the pain out of you? Because if you didn't, and I'm betting you didn't, because you're asking now as a grown woman, how do you heal? So that says you weren't allowed to get all your feelings out. That says there's still pain inside of you that needs to heal. All right. So who didn't allow you to get your feelings out? Was it these same women who rejected you and hurt you grievously? All right, and who else? All right, now what you have to do at this stage in your life is you have to begin to go into that vault in which you've housed all of that pain. You have to go in there and you have to begin to unlock that vault and let that pain out in your counseling sessions with your therapist, in your letter writing, letters you don't send, in your journaling, and some of the other tools I talk about in my book, there's a hole in my love cup. You have to start flushing it out and it hurts coming out but it's also cathartic. It also is relieving. It lightens our load. We begin to feel lighter. The more we have the courage to bring up and out all of those feelings that we haven't, even into adulthood, you haven't wanted to touch those and you're needing to heal from them now. And you've got to be willing to face that stuff. And that's why transformation ultimately always, the linchpin of transformation is always courage. And it's the courage to face the stuff we've been running from, or that maybe we didn't even know was there, but now we know we need to face. All right. I'm going to take two more questions, then we're going to call it. Okay. Does a man who loses interest in a woman because of her weight ever become attracted to her again? Ginger, that's a great question, and I can hear the pain in your voice as you ask it, and I'm sorry that you're asking this question. It's a good question, solid question. I'm going to give it a straight answer. But I feel your pain because I'm hearing that you, I'm going to assume this is you and that uh, your um, man lost interest in you. uh, And I assume he told you it's because of your weight. So you've been taught that you were unwantable and unlovable the way you were, right? And that hurt. I hope you've been deliberate about getting all of that pain out of you. With your therapist and your journaling and so forth, I hope you've been getting that pain out of you because that's that wounds deeply. And somewhere deep inside of you, there is anger at him and hurt at him for saying those things to you. And I hope you're getting that out because even though you may quote unquote get him back, deep down inside, there's going to be an underlying bitterness because there's an underlying pain that I'm betting that person hasn't owned yet. Okay? Okay. And uh but I also feel bad that you're trying to win back someone who rejected you. You're asking, does that person ever want you back? Me might. Things happen. Have I heard of it happening? Sure. Is it rare? Yeah. Once someone walks away from you for whatever reason, very often they're walking away and it's done. But I feel what I really feel bad about is that you are still wanting someone who's rejected you that you're still hoping for, potentially pining for, someone who has clearly rejected you. And if you were my client, well, you kind of are right now, um, I would say, what's going on inside of you that doesn't allow you to walk away from someone who doesn't want you? He Clearly, you said he lost interest, okay? Lost interest. That implies they walked away or they're still in the relationship, but they've stepped back and they're not engaged, and we stay with someone like that because we think so little of ourselves that we think this is as good as I'm going to get or I want this person who really doesn't want me. And that says how little I think of myself. And so the real task in all of this is for you to get, go down and find those messages you were taught about yourself that keep you locked in a relationship with someone who doesn't want you. Because that's where the real healing is, whether in this relationship or the next one. And until you heal that, you are forever going to compromise yourself in your relationships. You're always going to settle for less than what you deserve. And you're going to settle for less. And you're going to allow people to mistreat you and reject you and walk away from you and say horrible things to you. You're going to continue to do that because you think that you suck. You think that you're unlovable. You think the real you doesn't matter. And until that stuff gets healed, which is why I've created all these tools, if that stuff doesn't get healed, then each of your relationships is fundamentally going to treat you the same way—that you are unlovable, and/or that the real you doesn't matter. Okay. But to answer your question as it lays, uh, as it lies, does a man who loses interest in a woman because of her weight ever become attracted to her to again? Can it happen? Sure. And I'm going to be, and I'm just going to ask your question the way you answered it. And you know, I'm guessing this person—if you haven't lost the weight—they're never going to want you back. I mean, if we're just being cold and hard and that was what you asked for, because clearly this person is so fucking shallow that they only want you if you lose weight. In all honesty, if I'm talking straight to you, like as your buddy, your drinking buddy or whatever, your therapist, you don't want someone who doesn't want you because of your weight. That's a shallow fucking person. Fuck that. Walk away and do the inner work on yourself so that you're never wanting to stay with someone who rejects you for something like that, okay? All right, final question of the night is going to be what? I like this one. We're going to run with it. Here we go. Because it's one I get a lot. And the question is simply this. It's from Miracles and Money. Um, I like that name. That's cute. Uh Miracles and Money asks, how do you know if a new therapist is a good fit? It's a legit question. I get that question a lot. Sven, how do you find a good therapist? Or what's the earmarks of a good therapist? Or how do you know whether or not to stay with a therapist? All good questions. So I'm going to sort of lump it all together here. How do you know if a new therapist is a good fit? Well, first of all, uh, some of the basics, do you trust the person? Do they feel right? Do you feel like there's a good feel? Do you trust them? Do you respect them? It's like, uh, for me, honestly, you know, I'm a former NCAA strength coach. Uh, I'm a former, you know, Power lifter and so forth I would never take um, <laughs> I would never take fitness advice at least when it comes to the weight room from someone who isn't stronger than me right or somehow they have something that I want. I wouldn't take uh, financial advice from someone poorer than me unless they'd made a fortune and lost it which I would actually respect there's got to be great learning in there but why would you take someone who why would you take counsel from someone that you don't respect? don't respect in the area that you're taking counsel. So it's got to be a person you respect, the person you trust, okay? Um, and, you know, there's got to be a good feel to it. However, don't mistake good feel for comfortable or don't mistake comfortable for, a, a, you know, good fit or don't mistake, you know, it's easy or, you know, it's it's that sort of thing. Because in all honesty, and this is my own personal bias here, you ask me, how do you know if a new therapist is a good fit? So I'm going to tell you my bias There are all sorts of good therapy out there, all sorts of great therapists, all right? And everybody has their own style. It's like in the NFL, there's no one winning offense. There are all sorts of different offenses being run, but an offense coordinator goes with the one that they believe they can win games with and so forth. It's the same way with therapy. You go with the one that you can get results with. Mine is results-driven therapy. And so I ultimately believe in deep questions and pushing with compassion in an atmosphere of love. I push my clients and I push them hard because I want results. They want results. Yes, they want their handheld. Yes, they want compassion. Yes, they want kindness. Yes, they want to be able to talk about themselves, but no, what they really want is results and they don't want it three fucking years from now. They want it now. And I move very fast and I push very hard and I ask questions and yes, they are loved. And I know when to pull back from questions. But ultimately, if you're asking me, It's got to be someone who pushes you. And if you don't feel uncomfortable, then you're not in fucking therapy, in my opinion. And if they're not pushing you hard, where you walk out of there sort of raw and worked over, get yourself a new fucking therapist, somebody who pushes you, yet also where you feel loved. And it's like, you know, they give a shit. It's not just about, oh, hey, 45 minutes time's up, got to go. It's like, yeah, I mean, they can have their time constraints. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you feel like they actually give a shit. Like they're really listening. They're giving energy. They're giving feedback. We need something to bounce off of. You know, we need questions that take us deep. That's how you know. And don't be afraid to abort a therapy relationship if the person is talking about themselves too much. Don't be afraid to abort a a therapy relationship if they're just letting you talk and talk and talk. Sure, that can feel nice once a week, but it's not actually getting you anywhere. You're just dealing with the weeks, you know, ups and downs. You're not dealing with the root issues. Don't be afraid to abort a therapy relationship. Yes, it sucks to have to start over and lay it all out again, but it beats the shit out of staying in a fucking relationship that isn't getting you anywhere. Well, fine people, this has been lovely. I love these lightning round episodes. You guys keep me on my toes. Thank you for all you bring with your questions and to all of my listeners around the world. And tonight, especially in Canada, I know we have had a lot of Canadians to my friends and family and followers in Chicago, to the people I love down in Houston, love that city in Minneapolis, in Los Angeles, in Baltimore, And all around the world, from New Zealand to Scotland, thank you so much for tuning into the show. I love you. On behalf of KC and on behalf of Rob, my producing staff, I love you guys so much. Have a kick-ass day.
0: The Badass Counseling Show is strictly copyrighted. No copies may be made without the express written consent of The Badass Counseling Show, LLC. The Badass Counseling Show is produced by Karen Camparelli and Robert H. Friedman. Executive producer Sven Erlinson. Original music by two-time Emmy award-winning composer Trevor Morris. Have a kick-ass day.